Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And it is December 1941 week. And uh, the greatest James, week of uh, the entire war. The greatest week of the entire Second World War. <laughs> uh, we are shifting our focus away from Adolf Hitler, dictator of Germania, to um, uh, climbs further east. So, James, who are we talking to today? Well, we're talking to a great friend of the show, uh, Rob Lyman. Um, who's, the incomparable, you know, the incomparable, the incomparable Rob Lyman. Lyman. Yeah, the incomparable Author Rob Lyman. of... A War of Empires, Book of the Year, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. I like the sound of that, Alan James. That's that's a yeah, good way to uh, start. No, I gave day. you, I gave you my Book of the Year. I had to do one of those uh, Book of the Year things for Christmas. Fabulous, and, uh, and you, you, you came up number one for me, Rob. Oh, marvelous! But but uh, obviously, what we're, we're, we're not talking about, we're not talking today <laughs> about what became of the. Uh, of, of how the Indian Army was transformed later. What we're talking about today is the events of December forty-one, mm. and yeah. um, and it is it is the launch of the Japanese attack. What's going on? We've we've done just so you know, Rob. Pearl Harbor done that. Yeah. Uh, um, declaration of war by uh, on America done that. Yeah. What we haven't done is yeah. what the we haven't done that sort of wider thing on the Japanese. What they're doing, and we haven't done what what they're doing in the Far East as well, and Hong Kong and and so on. Well, the amazing thing is, relatively speaking, it's not 1941 
uh, for the Japanese nor indeed the Chinese. It's um, effectively it's 1940, it's 1944. So just think about that. The Japanese yeah. had been at war in a real sense and China since 1937 and in, they'd been involved in Manchuria. They had engineered Manchukuo uh, in 1931 and um, actually they'd been trampling all over uh, Korea since the 1880s. So this was an extension and a long war for them. And I think this is one of one of the issues that we have in the West is our our, our perception of the, the Second World War from London and Washington is four years out. It, the Japanese yeah. had been fighting for a very long time. This was the latest uh, iteration in a campaign for the creation of their empire. Um, that actually, uh, 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 I mean, Rob, yeah. Rob, sorry. I mean, financially, you know, for most people, four years of war is, is, is quite hard hitting. Where are the Japanese economically by in 1941? A, they're in a really, really bad place, actually. Uh, they're in a really bad place because they don't have the uh, natural resources to sustain a long war. And remember, OK, they've been fighting pretty nonstop uh, since 1937. They've probably got between... It's very hard to get numbers, actually. They're, uh, they're, they've probably got between 750,000 and a million soldiers in China, which is just an extraordinary number. Oh. I mean, it really is. And they've been supporting and sustaining this for a number of years. So you just think about all the uh, the economic impacts on our own society after four years of war. There's very strict rationing. Um, basics aren't getting through. Families are in, in the countryside are doing quite well, but those in, in towns are, are starving. You know, they're, they're sustaining their society on this intensive militarism that, of course, we saw in Germany, Germania in the Second World War. And, um, <laughs> and But it's not enough. It's not enough to keep going. So, you know, the, 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 the Japanese have two choices. They, they either have to say, well, we're going to withdraw from China and stop all this um, silly militaristic stuff because it's very costly. It's not getting us anything. Or we're going to expand the war in a very easy way. We're going to we're going to grab all those Western uh, European and American colonies for ourselves and grab what we need, the rice, the bauxite, tungsten, tin, and so on. Um, and they go for the latter course. I mean, the, the interesting story about Japan in 1941 is that it's not as simple as saying, you know, there's one binary Japanese view about uh, what they should do next. There is a lot of debate, but there is a very, very powerful faction, the imperial faction uh, in the military uh, that uh, that demands action to ensure that they're not embarrassed in China. I think the really important, the really interesting thing about this is actually the argument that the imperial faction had in China was that they couldn't possibly not sustain the war in China because the people would not accept it. And the reason they argued it, I think they're probably right, actually. The, the people of Japan had been brought up, you know, since the Meiji uh, Restoration in 1867-68. They'd been brought up on this idea that um, Japan had, and I'm going to borrow this phrase, but I think it's, it's, it works for Japan, had a manifest destiny. They, yeah. they were able to, um, you know, that they had a destiny based on domination, racial domination of the, of the Pacific and of that part of East Asia. And um, they couldn't turn their backs on it. And this is a real problem. You know, they've been, uh, they've been fed this nonsense for years and years and years about how, um, how important an, an empire was to Japan. And just to suddenly say, well, we don't have all those, those um, natural resources to sustain the fight wasn't sufficient an argument to, to, to stop fighting. So they, there was always a sense that they were, um, you know, they're on this roller coaster and they couldn't stop it. They almost had to go to war, e even though there were factions in Tokyo. Of course, the, um, the one particular faction that didn't have enough, as much power as, as the imperial faction, 
uh, the control faction that um, argued against against war because they were realists. They recognised actually as soon as they pulled that trigger, particularly towards America, um, there's there's a, there a one way ticket to another very nice place. But uh, that's I mean, th- that's the one thing that there wasn't much going on. I mean, I've I think I've described this in the book. There wasn't enough internal conversation, sensible, rational argument in right. Tokyo about the consequences of going to war. I mean, that's difficult enough in a democracy, isn't it? Yeah. Democracies have, have enough trouble admitting that they that they've made a mistake going to war, and if in a you know a state a state that's essentially militaristic and. Uh, uh, nationalistic it that's even that's even harder isn't it um, it's a very uh, difficult thing to do i mean the interesting thing about japan is i mean it's not it's not a totalitarian state in the in the way no. that that, the, that germany was it was still a binary state that's the way i describe it because there was a very dominant political power play politics in japan as you will know in the 1930s was very very nasty and the factions the two factions really Although the, 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 the structure of, of essentially democratic government existed, power was actually resided in these, um, these, these two organisations uh, uh, who fought it out for executive authority, executive power. Yeah. And so the decisions yeah. were made by them. And there's a lot of skullduggery going on. So it certainly wasn't free and as fully democratic as we would, we would recognise here. But the point is... Um, those conversations were all in, insular, and I've described these as all being internal. So when you when you start having lots of internal conversations about going to war or not going to war, um, they get the, the 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 conversations get smaller and smaller and smaller, and they yeah. don't. They, 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 what you need is a lot of regularly injected um, pragmatism and new ideas and uh, yeah. and um, and reality. That never happened. So they they they've. They got to a stage, certainly in October, November 1941, where most people in um, positions of authority in Japan thought there was no way out but to go to war. And if you if you do the the what ifs, the what ifs in this are really really fascinating because there is a. I mean, I've made this argument. I haven't heard it from many other quarters, but I think it stacks up, which says Japan could have achieved all its military objectives and could have invaded by invading Southeast Asia without involving America at all. And that simply meant not not kicking the hornet's nest at Pearl Harbor. Just carry on, get the go down to Java and Sumatra and Malaya and Singapore. It'll annoy the Americans. Um, They'll probably throw more um, sanctions at you and and so on. But actually, the the, the causes ballet for war would not have existed. Uh, Rob, I mean, just to go back to the, the, the I mean, I absolutely take your point about manifest destiny and everything, but there is also that you know that they're, they're rapidly industrializing, um, growing uh, urban population. There aren't the resources in Japan to to feed themselves and, and become this this super great nation which they they want to become. I mean, obviously they could have done it through manufacturing, just like Germany could have done it through uh, through manufacturing, but they don't go down that route. They're dependent on on the United States for a lot of their resources. So the whole point of going into going to China, apart from Manifest Destiny, is a practical one, which is to get resources they need. That yeah. then doesn't work because they haven't conquered China. They've only conquered bits of it. And and the war is ongoing. So that's a drain on resources. And they're not getting the, 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 the replenishing resources that they need, which was the whole point of going in, in the first place. So therefore, you you know, and then you've got these growing sanctions from the US, you know, the oil sanctions and all the rest of it. Um, and other supplies. So therefore, you're kind of thinking, okay, from a practical point of view, we have to do it, not just because of you know we've got ourselves down this down this this furrow and the 
pride won't allow us to go back. But there is also this practical reason, isn't it, that, that, that financially, economically, they're going down the Swanee. They need the resources, they, you know, and, and so that's why they're going to expand. But tied, absolutely tied into this, absolutely sort of symbiotically, is this notion that, and anyway, it's our right to do this, to have this this Pacific block, Southeast Asia block. Yeah, you know, I of think which there's, a, the top yeah, there's a lot and of really, the two really, are absolutely yeah, they are. Combined, and I, I, I think that I think the two get more and more integrated. It's very interesting if you look at um, Japanese um, uh, education and um, their textbooks from 1937. They become very, very um, upfront about the need for Japanese, the Japanese people and Japanese children, in fact, to sacrifice their role for the for the sake of the nation. It's it's very. I mean, lots of cartoons and pictures and and so on about. Um, children taking up their swords to fight for for Japan and its rights. A couple of uh, things that are really important to consider here. Japan didn't have um, uh, the manufacturing basis. I mean, it basically went from, in in 70 years, from a non-manufacturing agrarian um, economy to a modern first world manufacturing industrial nation you know, very quickly. And it was very hard to sustain that. They did a very good job, I think, the Japanese. They sent out, they recruited engineers from around the world. They had massive graduate programs where they sent their own um, uh, students around the world for many years to, to understand and learn how to build ships and, and all this sort of mm. stuff. And absolutely fabulous. But there was this fundamental problem about and a long dialogue in Japan about how to create an empire. So Manifest Destiny, I actually put as a backbone to uh, the, the creation of a new um, Meiji narrative, which is how do we grow? How do we sustain our vision of what Japan is and what Japanese are in the region? How do we dominate? And they, they, had, a very, they had a very binary view of empire. They looked around the world and said, well, America's got an empire. Britain's got a big empire. Germany has got a, a an empire. France has got a big empire. We want one as well because we yeah. can see that this is delivering, you know, industrial capacity and trade and wealth to the the colonizers. We're going to do the same thing. But they learned all the wrong I mean, lessons. They didn't do enough thinking about it. And instead of maybe saying, well, the best way in order to be able to secure the economic growth of Japan is by trading with China. There were problems with that because. China itself was going through lots of problems from 1911 and 12. But uh, rather than growing pacifically, they had this military narrative that underpinned this whole conception of Japan as a samurai nation that said, well, we can do it by conquest. And the, the, I mean, it's a little surprise the first people they ran in, the first people they ran into probably the Americans. I mean, there's that, there is that, where else would they get the idea of a kind of manifest destiny from? They were well. You that's know. a very good point. They were really absolutely amazed when those first American ships sailed into uh, into into Japan, and and well, eighteen fifty six was it? They were absolutely astonished that a a race of people could be so uh, could achieve so much, and they were embarrassed as well, of course, that their great nation hadn't achieved anything of the kind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but. I, I, there's, a, there's a real problem here in, in growing very quickly and not l- learning um, all the lessons that other people had learned and, and jumping to conclusions. And I think there's a problem. So going back to that point about China, remember, if you're sustaining an army, let's say of a million men in China, you know what armies are like? Armies consume uh, and don't make. They consume an enormous amount. So you, you, ha- you have to produce lots of steel. You have to produce uh, lots of um, highly complex industrial products, chemicals and so on to sustain your army. You've got to produce a lot of food, uh, particularly rice and um, 
you can't do it from from Japan. If that no. army wasn't tramping all over China, I don't think there would have been anywhere near the demand for our resources, as indeed was the case in 1941. The, the problem was in 1941, Japan was bankrupt. And this is the right way, in my view, to see 1941. The explosion of the invasion of you know, their attacks on Southeast Asia and Philippines was a last gasp of an empire, not the first gasp. And that's why right. it, it declined right. so quickly thereafter. It didn't have the resources. The really very interesting thing, I think, and this has come to me in the last few years, I've thought more about this, is that actually in that year, 1941, the Japanese did an enormous amount of training and preparation for the invasion of Southeast Asia. They did it really well. Everyone was thoroughly well trained. They had sent uh, agents and spies throughout the region. They knew what they were needed to do to be successful. And by goodness gracious me, they were successful. But they, they spent not a drop of ink in working out what they'd do thereafter. So this great argument about, about taking rice from Burma and uh, rubber from Malaya and all the rest of it, there wasn't a plan. There was no civil service behind them saying, OK, we're going to first of all nationalise all the, um, the, rubber mi- the, the rubber plantations rather than the tin mines and we're going to put lots of people in to do this. They didn't, none of that happened. What, what actually happened in both Malaya and in Burma is that the military kept on, uh, retained control and yeah. um, didn't do anything about converting these countries to be resource sources. So there just isn't that civil service behind it? No, no nothing. Absolutely There's no allied military nothing. government. There's no, no civil affairs. So this big argument about creating a crew prosperity sphere. I mean, the last time I was on, I, I, and I talked about the, the, the fact that actually the getting resources for Japan actually was an excuse. It was an excuse because they did nothing thereafter to ensure that those resources were put into ships. They, hadn't, they didn't have a fleet, for instance. And this is something about Japanese uh, government, of course. The, 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 the Navy was a law unto itself. They were, and the Army was a law unto itself. I think one of the great successes of 1941 is that the Navy transported soldiers to Malaya and the Philippines. <laughs> I mean, that was really quite a, quite a thing in Japan because they hated each other. So this is, I mean, that's not unlike the, the, the Germans trying to get the oil in the Caucasus and, a, you know, that it's just a, it's just a thing on a map. Yeah, and, yeah. And yeah they haven't worked out how to, how to, what so to do it. The practicalities or the consequences of, of making, because yeah. after all, you know, the, the, the consequences of, co- of, of conquering these territories, you know, you, you, there's, there's this, uh, James, I think this is a theme of this week, uh, of this week of stuff about December, is everyone's misapprehension of their opponent's um, uh, uh possible reactions to what they do yeah so so not only do you conquer the southeast asian countries steal them off the french the dutch the british but then you don't do anything with those colonies and you also aren't factoring in what on earth those imperial powers might then do in by way of reaction that that, that's why and i've struggled to understand this for years i mean i think i finally got to it which is um you know why on earth why on earth did the japanese do nothing really when they got to malaya singapore and burma and so you don't think it is just about resources? You think it is about conquest? I th- no, definitely conquest. I th- there is the sense that... The, but they the need Jap- those resources, don't they? I mean, It's a number of things. They absolutely need the resources. So, uh, my sequence of logic is this. Uh, they, they had the sense of manifest destiny. Uh, it was a very racist society and yes. uh, racially dominated racist society. They were born to dominate um, the uh, Eastern Asian region. They saw complete collapse and chaos in, in China from 1911 and 12. And this was an opportunity. It seemed like right for the plucking. Uh, absolutely right. So, and and the, the the fact that you know it it became a source of resources. And I need to say here, a slave labour as well. A great, yeah, a yeah, great. Yeah. Um, 
the reality, the great characteristic of Jap- Japanese colonialism in, in Korea was the creation of Korea as a slave state. And it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And very, very little written about in the West. Um, yeah. Western writers are starting to talk about Japanese colonial policies in China. And you know, we, we know about Nanjing and, 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 and it was truly terrible. What was even worse was colonial depredations in, in, um, in, in Korea. And what it, what it created back home was the sense amongst the Japanese that they were born to rule. That, that, this, that, yeah. there, was a, that there was a very strong sense that this was right, this was our manifest destiny. And I think we, we, we tend to forget it because we, as historians, we deal in real politics, you know, what happened, why did it happen, without really understanding the, the, standing the cultural uh, dynamics behind it. Um, but, but isn't the lack of kind of the, the lack of civil service, the lack of allied military government for whatever, you know, or Japanese military government or for whatever you want to call it. Isn't that also down to kind of inexperience and new nationness and and just not thinking uh, uh, it through? I mean, you know, well, quite, quite possibly. I'll, I'll give I'll give you a little example. So in Burma, in the year before the invasion, so in 1940, the Japanese um, sent uh, a number of um, spies for want of a better word, uh, one of which is a man called Colonel Keiji Suzuki, to Burma to try to create relationships with the nascent uh, nationalists the, um, in, in what was to become the Burma Independence Army. And in the, the process of engaging with the people like Aung Sang and so on, uh, and his group of 30 comrades, uh, Keiji Suzuki became quite a, a supporter of the idea of giving independence to all these countries in uh, in Southeast Asia, perhaps on the basis of dominion status in, in the British Empire, so that they would they would be nominally independent, but they would clearly serve their lord and master in Tokyo. But I can't find evidence uh, in many other places of anyone else like Keiji Suzuki. Now, the very interesting thing about Keiji Suzuki is once the invasion took place and Keiji Suzuki came in with Aung Sang and his 30 com- um, uh, comrades and about 3,500 members of the Burma Independence Army, all recruited, by the way, in Thailand, um, General Aida, who commanded the 15th Army that successfully conquered Burma, um, got a bit irritated with this sort of semi-political quasi-nationalist called Keiji Suzuki and sacked him, sent him back to Japan, said, I never want to see you again. You're, you, you, I do not want to see you in Burma again. You, 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 you are delivering a, a narrative that's, that's counter-political. It's not what Japan wants. Japan wants to retain military control of Burma. So Keiji Suzuki clears off to Japan. The BIA is disbanded. Um, and sent off to the four corners of Burma, and a new Burma uh, National Army, the BNA, was appointed with Aung San at its head, uh, very, very closely controlled and a, and a very small number of people. But n- at no stage in all of this, Aida sit down and say, OK, we've now got Burma. It's the largest rice producer in the world. Interesting, something, interestingly enough, something that was produced by the British Empire. Uh, we're going to um, we're going to collect the harvest. No one collected any harvest. No rice was shipped to Japan. Um, there, there, there was no shipping plan. There were but no civil insane, servants. That's insane, isn't it? Because that's the one thing they're short of more than literally anything is rice. Yeah, yeah. They don't have and enough food. The, the other, so do the, they think it's just going to sort itself out? Well, is that, is that... there was no plan. There was no plan. And I think there's the point about 1941, I go back to this time and time again, is that it was a political expression. You know, they'd got to a point in their timeline of creating an empire and of war when they had to do something to to unblock 
China to and, and to be able to yeah. create resources, but they didn't have a plan thereafter. You know, yeah. Monty always said, have a plan. These people had no plan. And it's one of the most extraordinary things about it. It's why I, I believe that actually 1941 was the last gasp of a dying empire. They didn't they didn't have a plan to do anything with it. They um, they sat on Burma, Malaya and, and all the uh, Indonesian islands um, uh, and did nothing and d- to... Did nothing. I mean, all those ones of the, of the Americans attacking, that was doing anything. Well, they? think about all that oil in um, in Borneo. They did nothing with the oil either. And um, I just... My one example from Burma is Wolfram. Um, in... Um, um, up on the um, Morchi Road in, in, in um, the Kareni, where the, the Karen people live, is the world's um, third largest, a mine that produces a third of the world's wolfram, you know, absolutely essential to chemical processes. Japanese never went up there. They were scared of going into the hills. Very, very few Japanese uh, troops were, ever went into the hills, and when they did, they did on the basis of punitive expeditions to, to fight against extraordinary. Br- British operating in the, in the hills. I mean, it, it is extraordinary. I mean, it, and I think the, the problem is, if you just think, as we have traditionally done, that Japan... Uh, went to war in order to be able to create, get all these resources to be able to sustain its war in, uh, in China and to build up its empire and defeat its people. It's, it, it's not... Then it it's seems not, inconceivable that there isn't a plan, is there? It's, it's, know, an, I mean, it, 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 it's not substantiated by the reality of actually what happened. That's, so it might have been a political idea, and it, and it was a good idea, actually. So when, so when you're looking at, when you're looking at uh, uh, sort of Japanese documents and stuff, I mean, what do they say is the reason? The, the, the main reason is actually to sustain the war effort in China. Well, what, they, what they say, and this is in the newspapers as well, they're really, really angry in 1940 at the American oil embargo. They are absolutely furious that in association with the oil embargo, uh, the Americans are pouring... Uh, large amounts, large quantities of weapons and food and ammunition and oil, particularly, uh, to China through Rangoon and the Burma Road. I mean, they're absolutely horrified by that. And these two things... Because, you know, what are the Americans doing here? It's none of their business. Yeah, because they're they're blaming... So what the Japanese did in 1940s, they blamed America for the fact that they were unable to win in China. So that's why they hated the Americans. You know, if the Americans had backed out of China, they'd be able to dominate China, they'd be able to win that war, and they'd be able to secure the resources they needed for their population without further ado. But, you know, America has stuck its nose in where it wasn't uh, required and and was causing... So you'll see this quite a lot in in Japanese documents, this hatred of America because America was poking its nose into places that it had no right to. Uh, so uh, one of the reasons that, you know, I went back to my, go back to my point about Pearl Harbor. J- the Japanese could have achieved their strategic objectives, in my view, by ignoring America, but they couldn't because America resist. was the enemy. I mean, in a way that they, even the British weren't the enemy in 1941. It wasn't the British. It was the Americans. They absolutely, Japanese hated. They, well, because after all, because mm. after all, conquering Burma get, get, gets you the Burma Road. I mean, the issues yeah. of rice and rice and, you know, chemical yeah uh, 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 stuff aside yeah if you if you cut off the burma road then that serves directly what you're trying to exactly do exactly right in, in that, that, china that and if it. you're going to do that then you're essentially at a war with the, with the us that's you, right and and, and and what but what you could do i mean i think the my argument would be in a, in a what of scenarios they could have uh, they could have cut the head of the snake by capturing rangoon not bothering with the rest of burma aida couldn't believe how easy the british had been beaten and he just carried on yeah. and took burma uh, without actually prodding the hornet's nest at Pearl Harbor and just hoping that the Americans would be so occupied with um, Japan, with, uh, with with Germany rather that they wouldn't they wouldn't counterattack uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, sorry, um, they wouldn't but, but, attack uh, they wouldn't attack Japan. 
we need to take a break now. We're talking to Rob Lyman. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. December 41 week. We're talking to Rob Lyman. But yeah. Rob, I mean, um, Burma, Malaya, Singapore all, and the Philippines, that's all That's all to come a bit, a bit later in the early part of 1942. But w- where else are they going in December 1941, other than Pearl Harbor? Well, the, 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 the main target to Borneo, so the oil, the oil of um, Surya in Borneo, which is now Brunei, um, mm-hmm. uh, oil is a very, very important target. It's also Hong Kong, of course. But, but as they, you say, they don't do anything with it. They don't do anything with the oil and they don't do anything with what they can. So they're not using any of the oil that they get there. Uh, what they do is they they there is they continue refining it through the war, but only for their immediate military needs. And I th- the reality is that very, very quickly after the invasion, after the attacks. So we're talking about um, the successful seizure of the whole of Southeast Asia by mid-February 1942. By the end of 1942, of course, we were at Guadalcanal. And they are, they are effectively using what they can for military purposes in 1942. But at the same time in 1942, they're trying to get across the Owen Stanley Ranges in, in New Guinea and, and to drive down onto Port Moresby and there, thereafter to, to launch an attack on Australia. They are, you know, it's just like an out-of-control military. And, and yeah, you, you, yeah. you've got no opportunity of stopping and saying, okay, all that oil there, I want it to go to Tokyo because I need it there to, for the factories. No, no, the military takeover, this is the problem, that you know, the, the, the Navy in particular are, um, need all this fuel, one of the largest fleets in the world. It's, it's all based on oil. They need it desperately just to keep on patrolling. And, and yeah, they've gone and yeah. they've gone and prodded that hornet's nest in Pearl Harbor. Well, that's you know. So they've done they, Pearl Harbor, but, but they're also going to Borneo, and they're also going into Hong Kong. They're taking Hong Kong as well. They're, they're taking Hong Kong as well. And remember, the previous year they would basically blackmailed or, or uh, the, the French, the Vichy French, to take over uh, French Indochina. And um, in the night of the Long Knives, they basically go and execute all the French colonial officers uh, to ensure that there's no rebellion against Japanese rule. That's 1941, uh, and then. Uh, late 1941, early 1942, as part of this invasion of Southeast Asia, it's basically Java and Sumatra. Uh, It's Borneo, Java and Sumatra. Part of Borneo is under Dutch rule, Kalimantan nowadays, and uh, Java and Sumatra, of course, is part of the Dutch East Indies. Uh, That's also in part to be able to control all the sea routes um, out to the Bay of Bengal. That's really important, and the Indian Ocean. uh, and if if that can be achieved, then there's no uh, way that the the Royal Navy can counterattack from Ceylon, and that's really important. And in 1942, they make you know a very significant Japanese naval fleet makes its way to um, to Ceylon, and um, you know and is very successful. Actually, it doesn't actually get to Ceylon, but actually defeats the Royal Navy in, in the Indian in the in the Bay of Bengal, which is really quite. Shocking and quite amazing, but that that is the last gasp of uh, the 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 empire in that sense, the military. Um. I mean, who who are the Japanese using for this though? Because they're committed, say, three quarters of a million a million soldiers in China. Yeah. Are they raising new armies they for are. this? Is this yes. and are they getting? Have yeah. they got their best people on this they're, on these new offensives and sort of holding armies in in China? What what's the what what what? How, how's that working? Get, they are, there's a fascinating little booklet here called uh, How the Japs <laughs> Fight. Um, 
Uh, this is actually written in part by one of the American military attaches. It was published in mid-1942. It's, fa- it's a fascinating read. Um, what they're doing is they're basically mobilizing the whole population. And you need to remember that the, 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 the population of Japan, the military-age population was being mobilized from the late 1930s. So the point at which the Japanese army goes into China, they're now introducing conscription and yeah. uh, and people are, are are going through to do their military service. So by the time you get to 1941, most of the military age men in Japan have undertaken military service. And in 1940, um, a the, the invasion forces uh, had been identified for Southeast Asia and then went. They undertook nearly a year of training. Quite extraordinary. A lot of a lot of training. It does make me think about all of the training that you know. Um, Americans, Canadians, and Brits undertook before D-Day, and also what the Indian Army undertook in 1943 to prepare to throw the uh, Japanese out of Imphal-Kohima and and, into Burma. Yeah, Uh, very, very significant training. But then again, there was nothing left. I mean, it's very interesting. This this guy, uh, if I can find it, makes a very interesting point. Um, He says they're recruiting so many people. uh, The average height here we are. uh, The average Jap selectee is a runt. He says. Who is five feet three and a half inches tall? I tweeted yesterday when I read this. You know what the the runs did quite well actually, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and weighs one hundred and seventeen pounds. Of the men examined in that year, the nineteen thirty six um, school leavers year, who are now being recruited, about one quarter had a, a grade school education, so they'd been at school for six years or less. So these are mainly agricultural labourers. They didn't have much of an education. They could they were barely literate. Um, but as I said at the start, they were imbued with the sense of Japanese superiority. That the, yep. the J- Japanese culture was a very unified culture. Japanese culture today actually is very unified, and it was very easy to to create a sense of oneness in in Japan in a way that in most other countries it's not, because we all come from diverse backgrounds and and heritages. And even in Europe, it's very difficult to do because people look back to different places. Uh, this is the thing that Hitler was trying to do with this idea of Gross Deutschland, that ge- the real yeah. Germany was that which was filled with German blood and um, and not national boundaries. The Japanese had this. So part, part of this, um, the question that that these guys raise in this book about why did the Japanese fight so strongly and so well and so ferociously yeah. is they were fighting for Japan. And there was a very coherent sense of, of the Sun King and... Um, the sun god, actually, uh, Hirohito, the emperor, and a sense yeah. of the sense of unity that the Japanese had as a, as, a, as a culture. It was worth dying for. And, you know, this indoctrination, a little bit like Germany, but I think it was more ferocious than Germany, yeah. had begun in the 1930s and was insidious. And it really was, you know, young people well, absolutely believed it. It's deeper as well, isn't it? It's not. It's not a sort of um, yes. You know, uh, uh, yes. A, a, a new invention is it? Which because Nazism, after all, is, is a radical reinvention of uh, of ideas and extra stuff added in. This is this is a calling on a deeper time cultural thing. Well, it's it, it, you're right, and it's very religious. But you know, it's all a lie because yeah, yeah. I, 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 a number of years ago, I tried to sort of um, get to the bottom of Bushido and, and historically, where, where did it come from? And it came directly out of the Meiji Restoration in the 1860s, where they, they, they wanted to be able to create an idea of what um, martial honour actually meant. And they then reached back into this mythological past to create a new sense of, of Bushido. Yeah. Bushido was only really 
sort of raised its ugly head in the early 1900s, you know, and, and, it, and it really gelled together with the defeat of the Russians at Port Arthur in 1904 and yeah. 5. Um, yeah. But that was the foundation. The foundation of um, Japanese militarism was something that was a generation and a half old, but it was unbelievably powerful because, as, as all the commentators say, of course, Bushido is a military code, as, you know, that, that's the, the expression of what and who we are as samurai, was allied to Shintoism, uh, which was very much part of the sense that the emperor was was divine and a descendant of the sun king or the sun god uh, and therefore you know you have whilst you have democratic structures of government largely democratic structures of government which is actually a very interesting mix of french german and british political structures you know houses yeah. of parliament uh, laws and police forces and upper houses of parliament and so on uh, you then have this demigod on the throne and you have emperor worship massively and everyone's encouraged to worship the emperor, um, which comes to bite them on the bum, actually, in 1945. Yeah. We'll get to that eventually. But um, when Tojo wants to continue fighting and, and Hirohito sees the emptiness of the, yeah, yeah. Um, of the militarism that they'd created and, yeah. and wants to throw it all in. But Rob, just to go back to specifically to December 1941, you know, you've touched on sort of on Borneo and Java, but but what's happening in Hong Kong? You know, Hong Kong is 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 a British enclave, but it's also part of China. Yes, Hong Kong is on a lease, a ninety nine year lease, um, which Britain forced as a concession out of the collapsing China, um, and uh, it's a very important entrepot port, trading port for the empire, uh, as indeed is Macau, further down the coast for Portugal. Uh, as indeed is Singapore, which is entirely independent um, because Singapore grew as a colony from nothing, whereas um, Hong Kong had always been, been a port. Um, uh, the, the, the problem with Hong Kong, of course, is that it is indefensible. Um, and the, really the great tragedy of Hong Kong is that you know, large numbers of Canadian and a small number of British troops were, uh, were left to defend the place and it was indefensible. There is nowhere you can go, actually, if the Japanese army comes across the border from China and, and, uh, and attacks you in Hong Kong. You either... Yeah, so what, so what is their, their... I mean, what is their attack plan for Hong Kong? They're, they're coming from mainland China, which, of course, they control. They control the entire literal all the way to... They, they captured Shanghai in 1937. So, so the they've entire, got the whole coastline. Yes, yep. The entire coastline is in Japanese hands. So the whole idea about the Japanese is that um, they would secure, you know, come down from Manchuria, secure uh, Beijing, Peking, and then take the coastline, and then like that ink stain, uh, go go further into China. But if you know anything about Chinese topography, you know, it's basically mountains uh, riven by these great rivers. And and all the Chinese, uh, the Cantonese army under Chiang Kai-shek did was withdraw to the mountains of Yunnan, the capital of which is Chongqing, and, and the communists were even further back. So there's a real challenge to the to the Japanese. They are an infantry-based army. They actually don't have a huge amount of air, air, air power, and it's not particularly Not well the army, integrated. do they? It's no. limited. It's, it is very limited. And, and just the size of the beast they're trying to, um, uh, trying to eat up, it's, it's almost, it's ridiculous, really, when, when you think yeah. about it. So, but look, most of the trade, a lot, most of the money, most of the industrial capacity is along the coast, and the Japanese held, it, held, held virtually all of it. Um, and of course, it was very easy for the Japanese just to pour, you know, three brigades or a division into Hong Kong in, just before Christmas 1941 and capture it. And the re- the really great tragedy is the Canadians had uh, been asked to provide troops to reinforce Hong Kong and did so basically as a, a political 
you know, sop to the, the British yeah. and, and and to demonstrate their their commitment to the defence of Asia against the Japanese. Uh, and many of them then, you know, spent the rest of their their war in a pretty terrible yeah. captivity, frankly, yeah. in, in in outer Mongolia. But Battle for Hong Kong itself is sort of over. It's a, a sort of a week, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's one of those sort of. Uh, You've got to you've got to show willing in defending the place, even though there's absolutely no way you can win. It's 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 a Hong Kong is just tr- tr- tragic, dismal business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, the, the, the 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 real solution should have been for Britain to have withdrawn its troops from Hong Kong and just to have declared it a free city and left it alone, yeah. because it is indefensible. But po- politically, in an empire where actually you really do believe in this. Um, this narrative about the sun never setting, it, it was impossible for Britain to do. And th- those yeah. um, those troops were, frankly, sacrificed to, to no avail. It's, it's a great tragedy. Actually. Oh, and what was, the, what was the reaction? I mean, obviously, the the whole world has been sort of thrown into turmoil by, by Pearl Harbour. But, but does Hong Kong suffer from as being a kind of an after event? Or, or is there real shock in Britain at what's happened? Uh, Hong Kong, uh, there's real shock, but actually not not many people know about it. Actually, uh, there much more. There is much more attention. If you look at the newspapers, there's much more attention placed on Malaya. I think people recognise that Hong Kong was indefensible. It's very close to Japan, uh, very close to Japanese army in um, in China. Of course, our concession, the British concession in Shanghai, was overtaken at the same time uh, by the Japanese, who basically marched in and um, and 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 took it over. Um, so I think people expected Hong Kong to to fall. There, there was a sense, though, if you you know Churchill certainly a month before uh, in talking to the uh, Canadian Prime Minister is saying, look, you know if we if we bolster the defences of Hong Kong, the Japanese won't dare to challenge the might of the British Empire. So there, there there was a little bit of head in the sand stuff going on as well about what the Japanese were going on. Just as an aside, I think this is one of the basic problems that we in the West had with Japan in 1940-41. And it's a real problem that the Japanese had. They didn't understand us, we didn't understand them. There was not enough thinking going on at political levels to understand what yeah. Japanese, what the Japanese were thinking, what their options were. And there was very little real diplomacy persuading them that actually there might be a different way. You know, the great strength of diplomacy is offering options and choices. And none of that was going on. It's always struck me that the British have, have sort of slightly regarded, well, you know, We've got our hands full in the West at the moment. We're having to have sort of arcane conversations about diplomacy in, in Franco Spain uh, and and Vichy um, territories in North Africa. The last thing we want is kind of be worrying about Japan and the Far East, which is also kind of you know thousands of miles away. The Americans seem to have got it all in hand with their sanctions and stuff. We'll kind of we'll park this with the Americans of it, and then and then are kind of surprised when it all goes sort of pear shaped. We we I think it's a little bit more. I think I agree with you, but I think it's, it's a little bit more profound. We actually knew um, the Japanese pretty well, and we'd had long relationships with the Japanese and had the quite successful diplomacy. But there wasn't enough thinking or talking or discussion in the late 1920s and 30s about where Japan was headed. Uh, and there were very significant pockets of ignorance. I'll just flick across to, to China now, because actually we didn't understand China. We, Britain, did not understand China at all. We didn't understand China actually increasingly you know, through the 1930s and into the 1940s. And perhaps we started really to understand what Chiang Kai-shek was trying to do with China. In yeah. 1943, 44, uh, when it was probably too late, we certainly made a mess of it in 1941 and 42, and I think that's partly the problem in 
Japan as well. Now, what, what caused that? Well, we were overstretched. As a country, as a nation, we're impoverished uh, and we're overstretched. We don't have the diplomatic resources, the um, Foreign and, um, Commonwealth Office or the Colonial uh, Office. and Well, there were two, of course. We had the Foreign Office and the Colonial Office had been reduced in size. There wasn't much, there wasn't enough aggressive diplomacy going on. Um, and th there had been a view through the 1920s and 30s that actually, you know, if the balloon went up anywhere, it would, um, as you suggest, there'd be other people to help us out in America. We need to remember, though, that with America, our, um, we, we had very different and, and competing strategic interests to the Americans. And uh, it might interest in some of, some of uh, our listeners to, to know that uh, America had plans in the 1930s to, uh, to, counter, a raw, to counter the Royal Navy dominance uh, in, in the Pacific uh, and in, uh, East a in the East uh, Asian waters, which is just really does seem extraordinary, doesn't it? But the, the yeah. Americans clearly wanted to uh, develop their interests in the Pacific, and that was primarily focused on China. And the British were very keen to, uh, to keep their trade routes going around the empire. Fundamentally, it's Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaya, Borneo, um, and across to Ceylon and India, and, and then down to Australia and New Zealand. So, but they're very different. And we had spent a lot of time, we, the British, had spent a lot of time focused on creating trading relationships and protecting the trading, uh, those trading relations. We thought that was the be-all and end-all of sustaining the empire in the Far East. And there's wonderful books and diagrams, actually, of, of, uh, of the strategic imperative of Britain. Uh, yet that, was, that can only be part of it, because we weren't talking to Japan. We weren't talking to the threats. We weren't identifying what the real threats to uh, these trading routes and imperial connections might be. And a primary one, increasingly, was Japan. And we, we almost ignored it. We, we, put out, we really did put our heads in the sand. And I think that's a real lesson from the, from the 1920s and 30s and what happened in 1941 for us today. You know, if we really want to build an army that's structured around who our real enemies are, we'll do some thinking and, and, um, and looking around to see who the potential is. who that is. <laughs> yeah, do it. I mean, because if you don't do it, you know, you, you, your head's in a place it shouldn't be. Yes, I mean, after all, the, 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 the British Empire in, in the interwar years it occupies a strange place politically, but doesn't it, in the UK? Because it's bigger than it's ever been. But that's also, you know, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a civil servant in London, you think, oh, God, how are we going to pay for all this? And the, the, the prevarication over what, what to spend in Singapore and what to do in Singapore that goes on and on and on through the, through the 20s and the 30s shows that actually a, a seriousness about that theatre doesn't strictly speaking exist and yet and yet when you come to when you come to 1941 the assumption is Singapore is the linchpin of our defense even though people have been trying not to spend money on it and trying not to make it the linchpin of anything right up to that point and the, and the sort of you know the st strategic thinking you know east of Suez basically is pretty pretty un underdeveloped isn't it which is quite interesting really because it because because west of Suez it's it's the the, the British are thinking very much in imperial terms and how you run a European imperial war with, you know, getting the Germans to fight you at arm's length and all that sort of thing. There, I, it's, it, you've, you put your finger on, on the nub of the question, which is, you know, how do you defend the empire? If in London you're thinking that the empire is effectively trade routes, which is how they saw it, it's trade routes, um, then what you need to do is, uh, when, they spend, when they talk about spending money in Singapore, it's about creating a naval base not to protect Singapore and not to protect Malaya, but to act as a base for which the... 
one of the two British fleets, the Royal Navy fleets, could foray out uh, in the event it was required to protect those trade routes. That's that's the whole concept. It wasn't a, it wasn't designed to create a, a fortress. Bastion, a, a fortress. A, a no, yeah, 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 no, yeah, no. Yeah. All, all of that, that all of that terminology came later. Um, those guns in Singapore were designed to protect the new naval base and the dry docks that had been built and were never used, in fact. I've um, scrambled over some of those, those yeah, gun, gun Yeah, they're quite extraordinary, aren't they? They're all but, facing you know, south, you know. Yeah, but the, 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 no one had contemplated the idea that someone might invade Malaya. I mean, who might do that? I mean, same with Burma. Who, who might invade Burma? Where might they come from? I mean, we just, it's worth just stopping and saying, actually, what the Japanese did achieve in their last gasp of empire, I think we all acknowledge that Pearl Harbor was a complete disaster strategically, and it was the nail in the, in the coffin for Japan. But goodness gracious me, they did a pretty good job of, of invading, um, yeah, okay, admittedly unprotected, largely unprotected um, uh, colonies across the region and, um, and created their, their empire, even though it was only going to be um, a fitful one and, and, and it wouldn't last long. So, you know, I mean, this is a little point about militarism. M- militarism is the great strength of militarism is having a good military. It's the, yeah. it's the only thing. It doesn't do anything else. And, one, one, and once you've fired that bullet, you've got nothing, nothing left. And I think you know Japanese... that's one of the wisest comments I've heard in a very, very, very long time that I've never actually yeah. really properly thought about. I mean, yeah, yeah, you just fire yeah, that absolutely. bullet, and, and the army's no good anymore because it, it's it's it's, it's spent. It's spent, and there's nothing to sustain it. Nothing, and that's the whole story of the Great East Asian Co-Prosperity Fair. It's a great, it was a great tragedy because. Because of that lack of organisation and discipline in Japan, people starved across Southeast Asia. I mean, and, and look, just think about, we don't really know. Rana Mehta talks about 20 million. It's as good a guess as any, actually, about the number of people who died as a consequence of Japanese militarism. Um, and, and then think about the number of Japanese who died as a consequence of this crazy adventurism. It's, mm. um, it's nothing Amazing. an intelligent country really oh, that's should been do. Fascinating, <laughs> Rob. Really, really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much, Rob. No, um, it's my pleasure. It's good to good to be on. We have ways again. <laughs> Coming to attention. To <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks so much, Rob. Um, thanks everyone for listening. Um, December forty-one week. Cheerio. Cheerio. Bye, everyone. <laughs>